All right, we're live. If you somebody could type in yes, just to confirm that you can hear me, just a couple people can do that. We'll get started here. Uh, my name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key 21 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products ever since. So when you license to a company, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. You don't need to raise money. You don't need to start a business. You don't need to hire people. And you don't need to create distribution from scratch. But I don't want to feel like I'm talking to myself. So if somebody could type in yes into the live chat to confirm that you can hear me. Occasionally, there's some problems with YouTube. I was trying to connect earlier. That's why I'm about two minutes late. Um, so I want to make sure you guys can hear me. Um, so nobody's typing yes. There we go. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Michael, Beth, Stefan. And a bunch of other folks. Okay, good. So we're going to do a whole hour of Q&A. I see that you guys have already typed in some questions. Um, uh, if, if somebody could also type in, I mean, normally listening to me, I'm because for some reason this mic didn't work, I'm using the mic on my computer. Let me know what the sound quality is, if it's acceptable or just okay, so I don't use it again. Um, once you start a live stream, you can't change your microphone. It's kind of lame. But I, I understand. There's probably some technical reason for that. But if it doesn't, okay, that's great. But you guys, give me your opinion, two cents, if it sounds okay. I'm in a room with no distractions or noises, so that's always a good thing. All right, so let's let's get going here, guys. And again, my name is Andrew Krauss, and I'm the co-founder of InventRight. And we've been doing these live Q&As on Mondays um, pretty much since the pandemic started. And it's kind of our service to the community and it's a great way to get some more questions answered. And if you haven't, subscribe to our YouTube channel. I think on the same video, you can click subscribe right now. That would be do us a great favor. We'd love to get from 40,000 um, subscribers to 80,000. That would be great. So if you find that what I say tonight is really helpful, subscribe to the channel. It doesn't. It's not like any commitment. It's just going to show a subscription. It's not like you're getting spam or you're getting any emails from us. We don't even have your email for that. So it's not a big deal, but it helps us. And then try to give thumbs up to videos and stuff. So if you're wondering, hey, well, okay, I can't afford to be a student and get coached, but I want to do what I can because Andrew's been helpful or Steven's been helpful, then do those things. Give us the thumbs up on videos and, um, and subscribe to the channel. All right, so let's get going. Uh, Leonard, and by the way, if you type your first name at the beginning of your question, then I can read your first name instead of uh, any handle you have, but either way is fine. Uh, Leonard, hi, Andrew. I've heard you and Stephen say typically that typically the U.S. Patent Trademark Office doesn't view provisional patent applications until you're ready to turn it into a patent. Even then they don't. Um, can the general public view your provisional patent application during 12 months? No, and that's what's a great thing. Now, I talked to somebody just the other day that had filed a full utility patent, and it was issued. And I said, well, and normally I wouldn't advise this, but he was in an area that was very difficult. Um, they tend to beat you up about patents because it was a category that was very difficult. And I said, you know what? You should file a provisional patent as well. And he's like, Andrew, I have an issued patent. I'm like, yeah, but this industry you're in is kind of difficult. And so they can look at your patent that's issued and go, well, here are the claims. Let's try to work around the claims. Now, I haven't had that happen to one of our students in 21 years where a company they presented to um, knocked off their idea. It could happen. I've talked to other inventors where it's happened. 
Um, but I think because our students are so professional with the way they conduct themselves when they're getting the one-on-one coaching that the three or 4% of companies might consider doing that. They don't mess with you on that. Let me, let me realize, realize them a little bit. There we go. A little bit higher there. Um, so I'm not really tremendously concerned, but because this particular industry was very difficult, I said, great, file a provisional patent in addition to that patent you filed. And then you could say patented and patent pending. And so what's great about the provisional for 75 bucks if you're a micro entity, which you got to do a worksheet on the patent office website. It's, you're earning, it's, it's somewhere under 150, 180K annual household income. But if not, it's 150. So instead of 75, but it's very affordable. So if you're a micro entity for 75 bucks, they can't see what you have. So it keeps them guessing. And so that's a great tool for all of our students. And even if you file the patent, if it's a difficult industry, like a kitchen gadget, not difficult. Packaging industry, like my business partner's in, Stephen Key, brutal. Absolutely. Almost, I would expect you to do that. You want to do that regardless. So, um, yeah. So, so, no, they can't see what you filed. Nobody can. The patent office doesn't even look at it. They just make sure that you paid your fee and you have an address and you filled out the form right. You could scribble on a piece of paper with crayon. They will not review that. And the only time it would ever come up is if you file a full utility and reference your provisional, if that year was an issue, okay? If that year was an issue, it'd be the only time it would come up. Um, so, you know, I, I'm really not that concerned about it. And, and uh, yeah, it's a great tool, uh, Leonard. It's a fantastic tool. Um, Johnny says, hey, Andrew, three questions. Will being under 18 hinder my chances of obtaining a PPA or landing a licensing deal with a company? No, you should be able to do, to do both. You know what? It's funny. I don't actually have that answer off the top of my head. I've had students that were 16 years old. Now, I, I don't do coaching anymore because I have 23 employees and eight um, contractors to manage. But... Uh, it's never hindered our students. Um, so, and it shouldn't hinder you with doing a licensing deal either. Although you want to, and by the way, everything that we share today on this live stream is not considered legal or tax advice. Always seek the advice of an attorney or your tax advisor before taking any action. It's just for educational purposes. Okay. So, um, but with regards to do a licensing deal, you know, there are issues with being under 18. So you got to get your parents involved there, but we've had, we've had students do that. So that's not a problem. Same thing with the PPA. So um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned. I would not let that hold you back. Not at all. I think it's fantastic um, that you're under 18. You're working on stuff. Um, so your, your other question was, is an NDA the first step in making a deal and Usually, do we ask to sign or is it standard? Okay, so a lot of people think that an NDA is some sort of great, like, Iron Man, Superman, kryptonite protection. I didn't pull that off very well, but you get the idea. And it's not. It doesn't give you as much protection as you think it does. Um, so, but I can tell you, this is not from a legal perspective, guys, but from a business perspective. If you ask every company you show to, to, to sign your NDA, you're going to feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall. I mean, you could easily call 25 companies and maybe 20 of them would say no or 23 would say no. 
And this is the reason, and I talk about this almost every chat, so I'll make it quick. Um, let's say they're getting 100 ideas from inventors every month, and every inventor has a different NDA. Their attorney needs to go through with a fine-tooth comb to make sure you didn't put in there that you own their company or something like that. So typically, they'll be okay with you signing their NDA, but quite often their NDA doesn't protect you. It protects them. Sometimes it's, it's bilateral. It goes both ways. Um, but so if they want you to sign their NDA and you're not concerned about what's in it, which most of the time it's fine, go ahead and sign it. But see, they, they worked with their attorney to create this one NDA that sometimes they insist on the inventor signing. And as long as it didn't say something silly in there, like we'll agree to pay you a maximum of $5,000 or we own anything you send us. You do want to read them because occasionally I've seen those. Um, but as long as you, but usually it's going to protect them, not you, your major protection is your provisional patent application. And if, if they needed to review a hundred different NDAs from a hundred different inventors every month, it's not practical for them. It just isn't. Now, maybe later they want you to send a prototype. They want you to send more information, maybe some engineering stuff. Asking them to sign an NDA is fine at that point because, you know, it's like the two out of the 100 that they decided to talk further with. And now it's not unwieldy where they need to see 100 inventors, different NDAs with crazy over-the-top stuff that your attorney threw in there, or you just grabbed it off the internet. But your major form of protection is your provisional patent application and also the paper trail that you're creating. So to give you perspective again, in the 21 years we've been doing that, we've never had one of our students get knocked off by a company that they presented to for potential licensing. Could it happen? Yes. Hasn't happened to our students. Are our students way more professional than the average inventor? Can you say whacked out stuff that makes the company realize this guy doesn't know what he's doing? Yes, you can. Where our students, they're like, oh, no, he's really on board. Like, we can't get around it. For that small 3 or 4% of companies that might consider knocking you off is what I'm talking about. But it hasn't happened to our students. So don't be overly concerned with the NDA situation. We always advise our students to file a provisional patent application and keep everything private. So you're privately emailing this. You're not putting up on a website. You're not publicly putting up on YouTube. You can put it on YouTube unlisted, which is essentially private, and then share the link to that. But you're keeping it private, and you're only showing it to the people that said yes. We'll, we'll take a look at it. Uh, okay, Jason. Hey, Andrew, hope is all is well. Yeah, I think everything's going pretty well for me. Um, what initial question am I to expect from a company that likes my product? That's a good question. Um, what you really want to do is just to talk to them about the product. Make sure, because sometimes they might have a misperception, they might have concerns, and it's great to get on the phone and talk with them. Always get on the phone. Don't get interest and start going back and forth 20 times via email. You're not, I'm gonna, I, I have a weird way of putting this. You're not a real person then. You become a real person when they can hear your voice on a phone call. So the most important thing when you get on that first call is not all about the product. It's not about provisional patents or prototypes and stuff. It's about creating rapport. So they already kind of are interested in your product. It's about talking about the product, clarifying the product, if there's any thoughts that they have about it or concerns they have about it and creating rapport so that they realize you're not going to embarrass them. If they start showing this around in the company, you're not going to come out and do some crazy ass stuff that's going to embarrass them. So it's a weird thing to say, but a big part of that first call is just to, for them to realize 
you're not a whacked out inventor, but you're a level headed inventor. So because there are companies and they're smart to be like this. They're like, well, I love this product. but This inventor is just whacked out of their mind. I don't want anything to do with them. So one of the most important things to get you to do to get on when you get on the phone is to help them realize you're easy to talk to. You don't have to agree on everything, but you clarify and be easy to talk to. And they might have misperceived something about the product. So talk about the product. That's the most important thing you can do on that first call and establish some rapport. And don't even begin to think that this is a negotiation. It's not by any means. So over the last 21 years, the average from for our students, and this isn't because we're not doing things right, it's because we're doing things right. You don't get interest and then close a the deal a week later. It doesn't work like that. Um, and occasionally, once in a blue moon, we'll work like that with a direct response in commercial company. They're the only guys that do deals that quick because they just want to get you locked in because they're afraid their competitor will see it. Other companies, not so much at all. So you want to get on the phone, you want to talk with them, and you want to move the deal forward. You are not in negotiation by any means. But the average, getting back to my point, the average time from initial interest to a closed deal is three months. So, oh, well, Andrew, why so long? Can't I just close a deal in two weeks? Well, maybe they want to get some quotes in China. And that's going to take them a while. China's taking a lot longer to get quotes back right now. So that might be two or three, four weeks in and of itself. Could be, definitely. Um, they may need to talk to other people in the company, you know, and they might not have a meeting for two weeks. And they're like, well, we're going to discuss this in that meeting. And that meeting's three weeks from now, you know. So there's a lot of reasons for it. And then there start to be quite a bit of back and forth with um, the earlier stages to figure out if they want to do it or if they can do it or if it can be done at a reasonable price. And then there's a whole other stage with the contract negotiations. But in those early talks, you want to get an idea and they will tell you stuff they shouldn't about what they could do with it. But where would you place it? Where would you where would you put it? And you get them talking, oh, yeah, we could put it here and there and there. And then later they're a little bit more quiet about it. But you gather that information early on. So then, you know, like, for example, when you ask for minimum guarantees, you're like, well, you said you want to sell here and here and here. And I'm going to ask for like 10 percent of what I think you can sell or what you think you can sell. But those are early things that you can get done. You're collecting a lot of information that's going to move the deal forward and getting them to think a certain way. If you think you're going to get on a call and they're going to guide you to a licensing deal, you're sorely mistaken. Like, but Andrew, they're showing interest. They're gonna they're gonna tell me what to do next. No. So they don't do licensing deals every day. The company may have done 10 licensing deals. But this marketing manager that likes your product, he's your superman. He likes your product, but he's never done a licensing deal. He was with another company before he came on board about a year ago. He likes this product. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that's very common. Now, other companies that the there might be somebody in the company knows what they're doing, but your person doesn't know what they're doing. Or nobody knows what they're doing. Or your person and somebody else in the company knows what you're doing. But don't think they're going to guide you. You need to guide them. And you're not being bossy, but you're kind of guiding the conversation. Like sometimes initially they'll say, well, send me your patent and prototype. You never do that. And literally half the time when they ask for that, then you get on the phone call because you insist on a phone call in a friendly way. They don't even bring up either. Neither. So do not let them guide you. You need to guide them. And that's where coaching really comes in helpful when you get to that point. Now, I'm not going to say you're not going to answer their question. I mean, you might half answer it like a politician. You might fully answer it, but then ask them another question. You need to get on the phone. 
very important. Um, okay, so let's keep going here. Uh, Tim. Hi, I have a company interested in my idea. During our conversation, they stated they've been researching to manufacture a similar product to mine. Should I be worried? I have a patent pending. Um, no, I don't think you should be worried. Um, conduct yourself professionally and talk to them. You need to get on the phone and talk to them about it. You know, um, And like I said, we haven't had a student knocked off in 21 years. It'll happen eventually, but that's a pretty damn good track record. So I would just talk to them about it. Don't let your paranoid tendencies come out. You know, um, Don't think that they're saying that and they're lying to you because they're planning on stealing your idea. Just move forward with talking to them about your product and what they like and don't like about it. But get on the phone with them because, again, that makes you a real person. And it's a weird way to say it. You're not real until you talk to them. You're faceless. You're And you talk on the phone, you're still faceless, right? But you've got a voice. You're a person. Oh, this person's easy enough to deal with. I could work with this person to figure out these issues. You know, I could talk to them about what we're doing. I feel comfortable now and compare it to what you have and these things. But these are things that get done by getting on the phone. Um, so, no, I wouldn't be worried about it. We hear that all the time. And it hasn't been an issue yet. Could it be an issue? Maybe. But you have to just, you sh they're showing interest, you know. They just want to let you know they're working on similar things. A lot of NDAs say that too. We might be working on similar things that freaks people out. I was like, of course they're working on similar things because it's in that space, you know, in the area. But how similar is it? But I would, I would just let it pitch the product and see what the interest level is. I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Um, be aware of it, though. Um, Johnny says, oh, that was another question. Could you, could you over, overview of the process to quickly get a PPA, create or send your sell sheet after your interest, sign an NDA and work towards a deal? Are you wanting an overview of the whole process, Johnny? I mean, um, the, some of the base things, there's a lot of little details involved. Um, but some of the base things you need to do is you need to study the marketplace. You need to study the microcategory of your invention. So you have a gardening trowel. You need to know every freaking gardening trowel out there. That's doable. But you don't have to know every gardening product. That's too overwhelming. You can't do that in four hours. You could know every gardening trowel out there in four hours using Google Images and Amazon. You could. So you need to do that. You need to file a provisional patent. You need to make a good list of companies, not an anemic list like most inventors do with two or three companies instead of 20 or 30. And then you need to reach out using LinkedIn, email, and the phone of these companies. That's the very basic, basic. But obviously, there's a lot of details mixed into those things. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Raul said, hi, Andrew, what are the pros and cons of trying to license something too new? Well, Raul, I, I wouldn't assume that your product, it, it, there's this, it's an inventor's disease. There's nothing, never say these things. There's nothing like it. Never say that to a company ever, 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 ever. Never say that because it's not true. One, nobody's ever shown me a product where there's nothing like it. Yes, there's nothing exactly like it, but there is something like it. There's other products in that same space, been done completely different, but offering the same solution. There's other products on the periphery that are offering somewhat the same solution. There, there's, there's always something like it, 
hundred percent of the time. Okay. So, um, but that's not really uh, Rolo's question. He's saying it's something too new. Well, without talking about the product, which again, don't disclose anything publicly on this YouTube show. Um, it's hard to say, you know, we, I, we need to take a look at it and figure out, but um, so it, it depends on what you mean by too new. You know, some products are very new, but your improvement is very slight. They were like, oh, that's a big benefit, easy to implement. And some products are like creating all sorts of um, issues, like manufacturing issues and other issues. And like, this is too, this is bending my mind too much. Like if, but in the end, if a consumer looks at it and goes, this is, this is too weird. But if you direct the benefits so when you make a sell sheet, it's for not for the company, it's for their end user. So when you make the, a sell sheet for the customer, for the end user, whoever that is, and they understand the benefit, it could be very new and that's fine. So really it's a, more of a matter that the, that the benefits are clear than it's new or not. You know, that's fine if the benefits are really clear. But if a company, you know, just makes something out of metal and this is out of rubber and plastic you know, and it's like, okay, that might be too new for them. That's not what they do. There's a lot of, so I can't really answer it specifically, um, Raul, because I don't know what your product is, nor are we going to disclose that on this live stream. Um, so it depends. It depends, you know, but if you can sell the benefits and you don't think it would be really, really hard for them to implement, it would be, it would be able to implement it. I say, go for it. You know, I don't care how new it is. That's fine, but make sure the benefits are clear. Sometimes people say it's so new, but then the marketing is so terrible. I'm like, if it's new and it's different and people won't naturally gravitate towards like, oh, that seems familiar in some way, make it familiar. Do the marketing in such a way that they're going to get it and they're going to understand it and they're not going to think this is so often left field. So if it seems that way, bring it back, make it make sense. It's that, it's just that simple. Um, James said, hi, Andrew, is it worth paying for a trademark name to protect the product name? So what our students, and again, everything today is not considered legal advice, con consult an attorney for before moving forward in anything. But trademarks are cost a fair amount of money. It costs you like 1500 bucks. So, um, and a good percentage of the time, they're not going to want your name. And that's fine. So they may or may not want your name. So this is a, a free way, a completely free way of kind of putting them on notice. So if you if you call it the um, the uh, the widget, okay, let's we'll call the product the widget, okay. That's the name of the product. That's the clever name, right? Not so clever, but they call it the widget. So then you put a little circle with the TM next to it. That's called the common law trademark. It doesn't cost you a dime. Just like a copyright, put a C around it, put people on notice, that's your copyright. In this case, you put a TM with a circle around it and you can find it. It's gotta be a shortcut. You can copy and paste from the website. You put that in there right next to the name. You put, you, it's in, you show them you're intending on using it. And so like InventRight, we've been around 21 years. I think it was only two years ago, we filed for a trademark, two or three, I forget which. If anybody did anything inventing related, or coaching related with the name InventRight. We've been around at that point for 18, 19 years. We're around 21 years now. We would crush them because we have a common law trademark. We didn't bother to register a trademark for 19 years. 
because it's such a unique name invent right and we're in a specific niche so um that we would just show them all the marketing we've done and we would crush them so you don't have to file even a trademark when you're selling a product to file the registered trademark with the r you need to spend all that money so it's it's not the same so don't i'm not saying it is in a li- in a little bit of a way a common law trademark just putting the tm with a circle around is kind of like a provisional patent application you're kind of putting people on notice now trademarks they only protect you if you're selling stuff in commerce and you're selling stuff across state lines so i can't say it's really the same type of thing as a ppa but it gives that perceived protection our students have never had a problem with it um, one time which is really weird we had a student that was trying to license a product the company wasn't interested in the product it was the opposite of what i'm telling you about what i'm telling you is most of the time they're going to want to do a different name, but a good percentage of the time they want the name. But in this case, they're like, we're not interested in this product, but we love the name. And the student ended up licensing the trademark instead of the product, which was bizarre. It's only one time that happened in 21 years, but it's not worth spending the money. Um, Could that bite you in the butt? It could, but it's way more likely you're going to spend 1500 bucks and you're going to, we don't want that name. We want to do it. Name it something different. I don't think it's going to help you close the deal. Companies aren't that obsessed with names for the most part. So um, do the common law trademark, the TM with a circle. And well, I got it right here. You know, it should be registered now, but this is, this is old school. This is a real background, by the way. <laughs> uh, but it's still up there, you know. So if it was good enough for us to protect us for 19 years, now we were using it in commerce. And that's the difference. You can't get a trademark not using commerce and say, you got to stop using my name. You can't do that. But you get a period of time when you file a registered trademark that you get a period of time to start using it in commerce. So it's not the same as patent patents, guys, but it's still by putting the TM with the circle, puts people on notice, never had a problem with it. I think it would be a waste of money um, to do that. So sorry to ramble so long on that, guys, but it is a common question. So probably benefit everybody else, including James. So thank you, James. Um, How much do, this is from Michael, how much do DRTV companies spend on commercials? They, they spend millions on commercials. Um, there's usually when they do their first tests, they'll spend a couple hundred thousand quite often. It's very expensive. That's why you don't see many DRTV companies. It's very risky. They lose a lot of money with um, projects that don't do well. And then they make it up when they get a big hit. They run the heck out of it to make that money back. I'm noticing they're a little more conservative now. They'll do like mass email tests and they'll do other things um, to keep their costs lower. Before, they would take some big risks and spend a couple hundred grand not really knowing to test it. I'm finding that they're doing that less these days. Um, but they'll just, they'll, once they see it's working, spend a couple hundred grand, then they'll run the heck out of it, you know? Um, so they spend a lot. Um, some of them up front doing some tests, they spend very little. They'll send like basically a spam to a bunch of people and see if people click on it or watch the little video, or they'll even sometimes see if people order it and they don't even have it ready to order. And they won't actually keep the credit card information. They'll say, oh, no, it's on back order. Sorry. We'll notify you when it's ready just to see people will purchase. They do stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> So they spend a lot of money, which is, I, it would be basically nuts 
for you to try to do your own DRTV spot. I do see some companies trying to sell that to inventors. If you talk to anybody that's in DRTV, they'll say that's absolutely nuts. That's basically a way to lose your house and home. Um, and sometimes they'll cater to inventors' egos and they'll try to sell you that as a service. Oh, you should start your own business and sell it. And, you know, we'll charge you 200K to do this DRTV spot and it goes nowhere. And that's, it's very, very risky and very, very difficult. It's much better to license to them, let them take all the risk and they don't perform, they hand it back. Um, let's see. Uh, so I don't have a real name here. What WS Shrad. Um, but hi, Andrew. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Uh, when would be a good time to approach toy companies with an idea post Christmas? Anytime. So approach them any anytime. But if they let you know, like you send them one or they're non-responsive, and you can ask them if when's a good time. Some companies will have particular times they like stuff sent to them. But at the beginning, I would just send everybody. And if they're not being responsive or if they are but they turn you down, say, do you have a particular time of year you like to see um, new toys and, and ask them. You know, typically if you look at uh, toy trade shows like the New York show, it's a little weird with COVID right now, you know, but, you know, emailing a toy company when you know they're going to a major trade show two weeks before, that's probably not the best time. You know, if you know you're in the toy business and you're pitching toys and to pitch two weeks before uh, the toy fair in New York probably doesn't make sense. Now to go and walk the show. So there are times where you might not get much of a response because of things like that, but I wouldn't even think twice about it. I would just send everybody. Don't overthink it. Um, uh, so Vincent, hi, Andrew. Hope to shake your hand one day. We used to do that all the time. Steven, myself, a lot of our coaches will, will be out at different trade shows, houseware show, hardware show, um, consumer electronics show, um, Super Zoo, tons of other shows. And we'll meet up with our students that are going to those shows uh, for to hang out. Like last couple of times, the housewares, I think we did a meetup three days in a row. Every day we do a meetup. So hopefully within a year, maybe some trade shows will be coming back and I can shake your hand, Vincent. That would be great. Uh, what is the best way to make the first contact to potential companies. I have 60 potential companies, not sure how to tackle it. Um, you want to ask permission from all of them to send your sell sheet, whether you're on LinkedIn or via email or via the phone, you want to ask permission to send your marketing piece and then you send it and it needs to be good. You need to get it in like six seconds. Um, it's very rare that I see new students come on board with us. If they have done a sell sheet, that's good enough. That we're like, that's good enough. Some of them are like, well, this is okay, but we don't want okay. We want, boom, I get it, okay? And very few inventors do that. Even some marketing people, they do marketing for a living, and I'm looking at their sell sheet. I'm like, really? You do marketing for a living? Could have fooled me. But you know what? It's, it's not their fault. It's their own product. When people are really close to it, it's their own product. I see professional marketers with their sell sheet, and I'm like, wow, that's not good enough. Um, and so you can imagine others. Um, but I do see some, I do see ones that are good enough sometimes. Um, but, you know, if it, we, our coaches are honest. They tell the student when they're working with them, well, this is way off, but we're going to fix this. Or, you know, this is pretty good. 
but it could be a little better. We need to do a few things. Um, or if it's great, we just say, wow, this is amazing. We don't see this very often, which is what we'd probably say if it was good to go, because that would be extremely rare. Um, but it is the most important sales tool because it does all the selling for you. So like I said, when you're approaching on LinkedIn or email or the phone, you're just asking permission to send that sell sheet, not rambling about the product. Never, ever do that. And the sell sheet or your video is going to do the selling for you. So, um, so Vincent, that hopefully that was helpful. Okay. So uh, Spence is saying, hi, Andrew, I don't have a lot of funds. Uh, would choose to license over a patent. Well, that's not the choice. If people are confused on it, thank you for asking that question, Spence, because there might be some other new people that are thinking it too. You have two main paths that you can go down when you want to get your product to market. You can license the product like we guide people to do. And you don't need to raise money, you don't need employees, and you don't need to create any distribution or a company, okay? Because it's their money, it's their employees, and it's their distribution. They're already in 30,000 stores, 10,000 stores, whatever, okay? So that's licensing. So if you don't have a lot of money spent, hands down, 100%, you're going to go licensing. Because your other route is venturing, which is just a fancy way of saying make it and sell it yourself. That is not something you can do with a full-time job. It's not something you can do with a little bit of money. Now, most inventors, they have big dreams for their product. And when you license, you license to big companies. So you can think big and you are not delusional. So when you, for you to be able to sell half a million units, 10,000 units, it depends. If it's a 99 cent product, it might be 3 million units. It's all relevant, right? It's not craziness because these big companies, they do that volume. But for you to start your own business, with your one product company that retailers are wor worried that you're going to deliver on time. They're worried you're going to have defective product. They're worried you're not going to run, you're going to, not going to run out of money. They don't want to deal with you. You're a headache to them. Imagine the, the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond, every single product in the store, imagine this, had a different vendor and you were one of those vendors. They wouldn't want to shoot themselves in the head, you know? So, you know, they, they want to deal with a company with five products, 10 products, 20, 30, 50 products, you know. So they, they can give you those meetings because they can handle that. But the buyers, they can't handle meetings with one product for every vendor. Now, I admire people that fight tooth and nail and can get distribution because it's hard and it's a full-time gig. But selling your product on Etsy is not the same thing. Selling your product on eBay is not the same thing. And for most of you, that's not really what you want for your product. If you're okay with starting a little micro business and selling a little here and there, great. In my opinion, it gives you people plenty of time to knock you off. That's what it does. When you license a big company, it's first to market, to get it out there big and fast. There might be a few mean twos, but your guys, your big company license is going to crush them with pricing, with distribution, with everything. You know, But you can get crushed if you venture it in some little small weak way and people are seeing it's getting somewhat successful and then somebody just knocks you off and you don't have the wherewithal to take them to, to task. But it's not, um, who was it, Spence? It's not, do you want to license or do a patent? That's not the thing. Do you want to license or do you want to venture? Make it and sell it yourself or license it and the big company takes it on, handles everything and then pays you a royalty. If you're starting a company and making and selling yourself, you will never survive with one product forever. You now becomes a bigger adventure. You launch the one product, 
vendors, retailers will kick you to the curb if you don't have other products to add to your product line. Now you're like, damn, this is a lot more than I bargained for. I just want to bring this one product. You can't just bring one product to market. You can. What I'm saying is retailers will go, what else you got? And they're going to kick you to the curb, even if your product's selling well sometimes, for that vendor with a ton of products because they're saying, hey, Bob, the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond or wherever, just using that as an example. I'll give you discounts to these others. I got a new product I want on the shelf. He's like, well, I don't get any more space. He's looking around. Well, this guy's selling okay, but I don't, I don't owe him as much as I owe you. I don't, you know, you can give me discounts on these other products of yours because you got so many products in my store and they kick you to the curb because you're a one product, one skew company. So that's the problem of venturing a product. It becomes this snowball and the money is insane. So Stephen, our other co-founder, he's done nothing but license his entire career. But he did these, I should have like a sample, I don't on my table, but these little guitar picks and they were in the shape of skulls and Mickey Mouse and stuff. And he was making those for under six cents a piece and selling them in a three pack for, for I think $2.99. So it was a six cent product. He started that business with 200,000, a couple of his friends and they all had money. And it wasn't nearly enough on a six cent product. They started the business with $200,000 Let's start getting orders. It wasn't enough and banks will not lend money to you. So don't underestimate the amount of money it takes to get going. And I've seen inventors, oh, I got an injection mold, but I ran out of money. It's like, well, why didn't you look down the path that you're going and realize it takes a crazy amount of money to start a business and hire employees and do all this stuff. And you're not going to do it all by yourself. It's, it's, it's too much. But when you license, you put that all off into them. Money, the workforce, and the distribution. So getting back to your question, Spence, and I answer it in detail because I think other people might be in the same um, boat, is licensing for people that are financially limited is the best way to go. Licensing for people that aren't financially limited is the way to go. Licensing for people that are time limited is the way to go. And then it's just a smart business model. Let's say you weren't limited on your time or with money, you had millions of dollars and you could afford to venture the product. Still, licensing might be better for your personality, you know, because you're like, well, I don't want to run a business. I don't want to deal with employees. I don't want to make, I'm, you might say to yourself, I'm timid calling 20 companies. I can't call hundreds or thousands, but you have to make hundreds or thousands of calls when you're venturing the product. It's brutal. So if you're timid about licensing, you're definitely not going to be venturing because the sales you need to do there is like nonstop. So hopefully that was helpful, guys. Sorry if I rambled too long on that, but I thought it would be helpful to a lot of you. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, okay. Uh, Mimi, how, how many companies need the product design done and completed in CAD and ready for production? None. Um, they might like it, but they don't need it, nor should you do it unless you needed to do it for the development. Um, what is the normal standard of design spec for a license? Okay, so I always say that you're not selling your patent or your prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. And you illustrate the benefit of your product in a marketing piece, in a sell sheet or in a video. Okay, that's what you're selling. No company in 21 years with our students, because they don't do all the CAD and stuff, we have some students that do that. They're skilled in it, or they're like, this is a really complicated product. I don't even know if this can be made. And they get an engineer, and they do some CAD work and stuff. So I'm not, if you have that, that's fine. 
But if a lot of times when they show interest, you can get them to do that stuff. And you go, well, there's this product. It's pretty much like that, but you're just going to put a hinge on it. And they're like, oh, okay, that's enough for us to get some quotes over there in China or wherever else. And so you want to ask them about what they need. And so, but let's say they don't want to do that. And they're like, no, no, I want you to provide it. They will wait very patiently. They got other stuff to do. If it took you two months to get something, that stuff back to them, but at least now you know there's interest and you're going to very say, what do you need? And it might be a lot more limited than you thought. And it was like, oh, well, I can get you that. We had a student just, it was on Friday that was going through that. And we explained that to them. It's very common. So don't think you need a production ready CAD or prototype. Absolutely not. And don't think they're going to run for the hills if you don't have it. Not the case, not at all. Um, but we do have students that have done all that and that's fine, but don't think you have to have it. And any company that runs for the hills because you don't have all that, they weren't really that interested to begin with, okay? Sometimes people fight me on that. It's kind of funny. I'm like, well, we kind of know because we've been doing this 21 years. You can tell me that's not true, but how many companies have you called to license? You know what I mean? Um, Okay, good. I get. I love this one from Zam. Is this week okay to contact and to present companies, or should I wait after the new year? Absolutely, do not wait. Every year we get these questions. Every year we tell our students push just as hard. Like, okay, maybe not on Christmas Day or New Year's Eve Day, but besides those two days, absolutely. And if you're pushing out on LinkedIn, push it out on New Year's Day, Christmas Day. I don't care. They'll see you a couple days later. So, you know. Every year we get asked this, oh, you know, and it's almost like some, some students are like, well, you know, November and December, people are busy with the holidays. I'm like, no, you're not going to get away with that. That's not true at all that they're too busy. So here's what it is. It's basically a wash. So normally you get people that are like, oh, I'm too, I got to turn on the air conditioning here. It's too hot. Sorry, guys. It's hurting it. There we go. Okay. Um, so normally you'll get people with non-specific notes, not this time, not a right match. So, but here's the deal during the holidays. People are a little, they're thinking about family. They're trying to goof off a little bit and stuff. They're a little bit more, um, people tend to think about others a little bit more this time of year. It makes sense, right? So it's kind of a wash. Yes, some people are out on vacation for two weeks, one week, and they're not responding. And you shouldn't assume they're not responding because they're not interested. It's because they're on vacation. But it makes up for it. People that are there are a little bit more talkative than normal and more responsive than normal. And they'll get on the phone and chit-chat with you. And I've, I remember I've had some students who had hour-long conversations, which is not normally advisable, with a potential licensee. And they're, they're just a little bit more thinking about, a little whimsical. And, yeah, that's, you know, well, that's interesting. You know, trying to do something a little bit different. So it's a wash. Yes, people on vacation, not responding, but then other people a little bit, some people are more likely to talk to you. So do not stop, even during Christmas and New Year's Day, if you're reaching out on LinkedIn and all the other days, keep moving forward. We always tell our students that. It's like they're looking for an excuse not to do the work, which is understandable because you want to spend time with your family. But if you're really driven, you should keep pushing forward, Sam. So I love that question. Um, 
Well, Jason says, thanks. What kind of stuff do I bring up if I get them on the phone? General info about the product. How do I move it forward in negotiations ASAP? You don't. You know, the second, the second, let me pull that up here. Jason, the second you talk to them, you're in a negotiation. But you have to be chill about it. So you want to get on the phone and, like I said, talk to them about the product and let them realize you're a normal person. And then say, well, you know, what are our next steps here? What do you think the next step is? Do you want, what do you need from me? And you talk to them about the next steps. But don't be so pushy that you don't give them time to show it around in the company. Give them time to get that quote from a manufacturer that they work with. Give them time to do these things. And ask them about their timeline so that you know, so you know that they're not going to show up for a meeting for three weeks and you know you shouldn't bother them for three weeks. you got to keep moving forward with other companies. So being anxious and being pushy and constantly emailing them is a great way to kill a deal. So you don't want it to move forward to like a contract ASAP. You want to do it. You, you're pushing it forward, but you're not insisting and you're not emailing them every other day. Okay. Um, it's interesting. Spunky Monkey says, yeah, that's the handle, Spunky Monkey. Um, Spunky Monkey's been attending for a while. Uh, what, are the, what are some reasons a contract or product would fall through once a contract has already been signed with a company? It's a great question. Is there anything I can do once it's signed to keep things moving? So, um, yeah, sometimes companies will sign contracts and, and um, they get, I'm just coming up with random stuff. But they get bought out by another company. And then the new company, I've seen this before. I've seen everything over 21 years. The other company doesn't want to do the project. And now your manager's not with the company anymore because they merged. So sometimes there's a merger. And that messes the whole thing up. And you finally get a hold of somebody because your guy's not there anymore. And they're like, no, we're not doing that anymore. It's like, crap. Okay. Or, no, no, we're still doing that. But... Now, Bob's, it's going to be delayed a couple months because we're in this transition with the buyout or what have you. So that could happen. Um, sometimes companies change their mind and they fail to launch and they can hand it back to you if that's the case. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's that common. Um, another reason why they might hand it back to you um, is the product fails. You said, I'm just giving you all the reasons. They try it. They try it for a while. It's not working and they want to hand it back to you. You know, and so at that point, you can you can say, well, you can make suggestions because uh, Spunky Monkey was saying, is there anything I can do to move it forward? And you can talk to them. Some companies are super open. They want to hear everything. Some companies are like, mm, just contact us if you've got a product variation or a brand line extension. We got it from here. And then a lot of them are like somewhere in between. So, you know, uh, you might stay involved. And look at their marketing. And if you have two cents on the marketing, you might make a suggestion. Um, but they're pretty much going to do whatever they do now. They're going to distribute in all the same distribution channels they distribute now. So, uh, but try to stay close to them, or at least your, your contact within the company, if you're asking what to do, to know what's going on. So it's moving forward. And if there's places where you can help them, which you'd be surprised there are, sometimes they just don't look at it the same way us inventors do. Uh, there might be stuff to help with. Um, but not every single deal that is signed ends up with a product in the market or ends up coming back to you. But always, always, 
If it doesn't work out, you get it back. So you're never selling your idea, renting or leasing it. So that's important to know. We would never let one of our students set up a contract that didn't give them the right to take it back if the company wasn't performing. Um, but good question. Um, uh, okay, that's a funny question. Johnny said, after filing a PPA and then after some time there's no interest, will that 60 to $70 go to waste? No, it's more like your $10,000 didn't go to waste because you didn't file a full utility patent like a lot of inventors do. You spent $75 on a provisional. That's just part of the game. So I'm not saying this is the case for you, Johnny, but if you don't have $75 to file your own provisional, you should be getting a job and bringing more income in. So that is a financial risk you're going to take. The other risk, Johnny, is you need to get a marketing piece done. Um, don't throw a bunch of stuff into Word if you're not a graphic designer and think it's good enough. It's not. You need to get a graphic designer to make it pretty. Um, don't ever try to put together your own. You, our students, they work with the coach and what the marketing needs to be, but then they send it to a graphic designer and say, make it pretty. Okay? So if you're not a graphic designer, don't cobble together these terrible pictures and the wrong font in a Word document and send that. It's embarrassing. Don't do that. So the other cost you'll have, which talking about the risk, 75 for a provisional, then you maybe need to pay a few bucks to some graphic designer to do that too. So, you know, a lot of our students, you know, they can be in the game for less than two, 300 bucks, you know, but that's nothing. I mean, to be able to be making, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200K a year in royalties on this product, it depends on the product. That's why I gave that wide range. With an only two or $300 investment, there's nothing like it. So if you're not willing to risk that, and I'm not saying you're not, Johnny, it was a good question. If you're not willing to risk that amount of money to make that potential return, don't do this. That's ridiculous. And if you don't have that amount of money, you need to get your financial world in order, get a job, get things in order, then come back to licensing. Because if sometimes people go, I don't have 75 ducks for a provisional. I'm like, you're passionate about inventing. This is not the time. Get a job so you can spend 75 bucks on a provisional. You can go cheap with licensing. You can save tremendous amounts of money. Pick projects where you can always be spending less than 200 bucks per project, sometimes under 100, sometimes. Um, but you can't do it for nothing. You can't. You know, it's just not. That's just that's too low. That's just being too cheap with it. Um, Bravo had another same question. Should I wait till January to send my sell sheet? Absolutely not. Move forward, guns blazing, right now, today. Uh, we get to ask that every holiday, every November, December. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. V is their handle. Um, do you have any tips about licensing to a deal with a theme park, and what should I um, contract about my idea? Yeah, we had a student that licensed a product to Disney that was in every Disney theme park everywhere. He made a lot of money with that. Um, so if there is a vendor, sometimes it's not the theme park that's selling it. Sometimes it's a vendor that is selling that to the theme park and then they're selling it, you know, even though it has their characters on it. So a lot of, for instance, a lot of Disney products aren't sold by Disney. They're, they got permission from Disney to put Mickey Mouse in the coffee mug or whatever it is or a toy or something or a character. 
and they're paying Disney a royalty and they got to meet the style sheet. They're very picky. They're not going to let you sell their Disney product without approving everything. Um, so my best advice is sometimes you can go directly to the theme park. I would try that and pitch them the product. And other times you can go to there. You should also go to any vendors that sell to the theme park and pitch them. And that could be a way to get in the theme park. Um, and so Dana's there. Hey, Dana, how you doing? Dana's one of our students. Um, uh, uh, another person said, hi, Forrest's channel is your handle. Hi, what software is needed or to best make a sell sheet? Uh, none. I don't recommend you make your own sell sheet. I recommend you hire a graphic designer. You need to work. When we work with our students, we work on what the benefit statement, the bullet points, the picture should be. And this is all alongside helping the student study that space of their product so that we're looking at those other products in that space and figuring out what the marketing needs to be. And then they send it to our design studio and they make it pretty. I do not recommend you make your own sell sheet. Back 21 years ago, graphic designers were incredibly expensive. We actually had our students making their own sell sheets. Now I think that was stupid. Um, back in the day because we wanted to save our students money. That is not the place to save money. And graphic designers are so cheap now. There's so many of them. They're everywhere. So I'm not going to recommend any software to you because I don't recommend you do your own sell sheet. Um, uh, no, okay, so Spence says, Hi, Andrew. I've had a few people say now, now say companies may you're probably paranoid people. You got you got you got, the, sometimes the family or friends in your life will make you paranoid, even worse than you already were with stuff, and they have no basis for saying these things. But um, Spence is saying about a few people now say companies may take on my idea just so they can squash it. Would a patent or license be better suited for a situation like this? And why? Yeah, it's not going to happen. So you file the provisional patent. When you do the licensing deal, there's minimum guarantees. They need to keep paying you royalties, even if they never sell one. So they, you know, if you're stupid and you do a contract that doesn't have these guarantees of different kinds, where if they're not performing, you can take it back. Yeah, they could license it and sit on it. But we, we never once have ever helped our students do a deal where if the company doesn't perform, you can't take it back. I have talked to inventors where they got into a deal. They signed what other companies send them. And they're like, oh, the company's just sitting on it now. And I can't take it back. I'm like, yeah, who told you that was a good thing to do? Why did you do that? Um, so, no, they would never do that if you were smart, Spence, when you're licensing. They're, they're never going to be able to just sit on it, ever. And that is a concern of ours. Um, and, but they won't sign it if that's their goal. They won't sign it. So the whole thing is just it takes care of itself. And companies will fight you on things like minimum guarantees. And it's really common for them to fight you initially. And then they realize, okay, you know, you, you can actually say to them, well, if there's no guarantees, then you could just take up and sit on it. That wouldn't be fair, would it? Like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> and then they come back with a lower minimum guarantee. Or there's other things if they don't want to have minimum guarantees that you can do to make sure they don't sit on it. There's a lot of ways of handling that. We've gotten very creative. Over the years, our negotiation coach knows how to do that very well. Um, uh, Nor Nordo um, said, hi, Andrew. 
Is there a right timing to trigger the licensing process when it comes to a seasonal product? Um, no, I would just approach them anytime. And then if they start to tell you this is a better time to pre present to us, come on back then, then I would come on back. And they'll tell you if they're ready or not. I would not overthink it. I'd start approaching all the companies and then they'll tell you, well, you know, we're not going to be reviewing products for next year till here. But it's usually far a year in advance. So I would just move forward with a seasonal product and, and, um, and just present it. And then if they say, oh, we're really not looking at it, stuff for next year, for two years out, they might even say, for another three months, can you resend it then? So don't just send it. Don't think about it. Sometimes people, they, they ask these questions because they want, and I'm not saying this is you, Nordo. There's just another excuse to overthink it, to not take action, which is understandable. That's human nature. But there's no reason to wait on that. You just go ahead and send it. And if you start to learn like by a bunch of companies, oh, they like it this time of year or that one. It could be different with every company. So don't don't overthink it. No, just just do it. Um, huh. Linda Marie said, hi, Andrew, I'm watching your YouTube on my smart TV. I watch YouTube every night. I'm a big YouTube fan. I have So whenever people say I love you on YouTube, Andrew, it's very flattering because I have people – I would be like starstruck if I was talking to them. Um, and so I, I, I hear you. But anyway, so she's watching on her TV and she's been, it's been interrupted three times with ads. You know, normally, Linda, that's not that annoying if it's a recording because it will go to the ad and then it will come back to the show and you don't miss anything. But God, if it's doing that in the middle of the live stream, I don't know if there's a delay then on the live stream. I, I got to look that up. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm noticing because I'm a big YouTube fan. They play more and more ads. They want like YouTube wants like 12 bucks to block the ads. And I don't know if that's worth it. I, I, I was signed up for that for a while when they combined Google Music with YouTube Premium. And so I get the Google Music, but I switched to Amazon Music plus YouTube Premium. That can make sense, but I think they're doing away with that. Um, but yeah, I... I wonder if the stream then delays so you still get the whole thing. I don't know, Linda. Marie. If it does, it's not a huge deal. Then you just see everything a little bit delayed. But thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll look into that. And if you do find that answer out, Linda Marie, don't hesitate to email me at Andrew Inventright. Um, Jason said, as a licensing attorney, an absolute must if you receive a contract, if you know all the lingo, like minimum guarantees, any improvements you still own, can you negotiate it yourself? Yes, we empower our students to do that after they've got some experience doing a licensing negotiation and our negotiation coaches guiding them through it. Um, to do it on your own when you haven't done it before, that's tough. That's a really, really tough one. But I always tell people I want our students to become empowered with those skills. So, you know, Paul, I always say, he gets our students to 95% done. I mean, deals fall through all the time, of course. Like initial interest doesn't get to the final contract. But Paul will help you to about 95%. And then and only then he'll say, look, this thing's done. We got all the major deal points worked out. But you need a licensing attorney for an hour or two just to dot the I's and cross the T's. And we insist our students do that. Um, but in the future, once you learn all the major things, you can get deals to 95% done, but it's not just knowing the points. It's knowing these um, techniques 
for like they're upset about something. Like, let's say they're really pissed off. No, we're not doing minimum guarantees. They say that and we just like cool and we're like, we just wait a week or two and they inevitably almost always come back. Well, fine, but lower, you know? So there's a, a strategy to the negotiation that you couldn't possibly understand without going through it. So, but we do attempt to in, in, um, educate our students with real life experience there. So people can get it to 95% done on their own and you don't need to contact a licensing attorney because they're notorious deal killers. So to be able to go back and forth in the major deal points of the company, that's something you all should learn how to do. And we're all about empowering you to do that. Best way to learn it is to actually do it. So to do it though, Jason, um, if you're not a student on your own, that can be very risky because it's a lot not, there's a lot of stuff before the contract to get to the contract, the way they're thinking and the way you can guide them. You're guiding them with more, way more than they're guiding you. And if you're not guiding them, you're reducing your chances substantially. Um, if every time one of our students got interest, we just put them on with a licensing attorney, they would kill 80% of the deals that Paul, our negotiation coach, helps our students do. I'm convinced of it because they do not approach it the right way. Um, but, yeah, you know, could you try it on your own, Jason? Yes. Do I actually recommend you not getting a licensing attorney until you get it further along? Yes. Um, might there be a rare licensing attorney that is level-headed like us? Yes. Do they charge a hell of a lot more than we charge? Yes. Are they going to empower you to do it on your own in the future? No. Um, that was a weird way of talking, wasn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, uh, as Forrest has said, thank you for your answer to not make your own sell sheets. You're welcome. Um, so, okay. Um, we're about five minutes past the hour and uh, I promised I'd help my wife out with something. So, I better get on, on to that. Um, I am going to be out only from this Monday Q&A, only next Monday. I'm going to be back on the 4th. So I'm literally, since this whole thing started, I don't think I've been off for a single one um, except for this next Monday. So we're not going to be here on Monday the 28th, but I will be back on Monday the 4th of, of January. And I just want to say, everybody, um, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, happy new year, whatever else you celebrate, happy that, and um, ha just have a happy holiday, spend time with your family, stay safe, definitely, and um, just have fun, relax a little bit, it's a good, it's a time when a lot of inventors kind of dream about the, what they want to do, think about their New Year's resolutions, make it a great 2021, because I won't see you guys until next year, um, Push out hard and fast in 2021. Hopefully our YouTube show helps you out with that, our live Monday streams, and, of course, our coaching. If you go to InventRight, you go to our coaching menu, you can see our coaching programs. That will help you out. Consider that for 2021. And I want to remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.